If you don't know where Jonah is in your Bible, it's okay. It's tucked right in there between all of the books that sound like Star Wars characters. You know, uh, right? Obadiah, Jonah, Obi-Wan, Micah, Nahum, Chewbacca, Habakkuk. You know, it's right in there. I'm sure that's helpful for you. Don't be embarrassed. Use the table of contents. Those of you that have a phone, Daryl, you have a little cheater app there. Go for it. But it's page 774 in your pew Bible, if the Star Wars characters did not really help you at all. All right. We are starting a series called Navigating a God-Centered Life, and we're going through the book of Jonah. I think it's a story that we all can relate to. We are just introing it this morning by only looking at three verses. Don't worry, you won't feel gypped, all right? There will not be any meat left on the bone after we're done with it, and uh, so let's go ahead and we'll dive right into the book of Jonah, pun intended. Uh, It's getting deep, it's getting deep. All right, well, a little background on Jonah, his name means dove. Laura's smiling, that's good. Front row, I need to look over here more, all right, that's good. Um... Better than the laser look. So uh, he is uh, Jonah, his name means dove, and he is the son of Amittai, which provides for us a little bit of a clue of who Jonah is. And I'm sure if you've taken uh, Eric Sunhauser's and Jenny's uh, college group uh, meets at their house, you've already studied this, you know all about it. But if you turn back to 2 Kings, 2 Kings 14, hold your place in Jonah. 2 Kings 14, we learn a little bit more about who Jonah is in verses 23 through 25. If you don't want to turn, just hear God's word. This kind of puts him in the context. In the 15th year of Amaziah, the son of Joash, king of Judah, Jeroboam, the son of Joash, king of Israel, began to reign in Samaria, and he reigned 41 years. He's the king that we want to focus on. And he did what was evil in the sight of the Lord. He did not depart from all the sins of Jeroboam, the son of Nabat, which he made Israel to sin. He restored the border of Israel from Lebo Hamath, as far as the Sea of Arabath, according to the word of the Lord, the God of Israel, which he spoke by his servant Jonah, the son of Amittai, the prophet, who was from Gath-Hefer. Okay, and so we know that Jonah was privileged because he was a prophet of the Lord. He was privileged just like we looked at last week. Right? Last week as a church to end the year and to get ready for the new year, we looked at the privileges that we have as a church out of Ephesians chapter 2. We have some privileges. Jonah had a privilege of hearing God's word, being able to deliver it, and he was also privileged to be used by the Lord to speak a word of truth to a wayward, wicked king. And as he spoke that word of truth, the kingdom of Israel did enlarge its borders, and there was a time of ensuing peace. And that's the Jonah that we know. So before we think of Jonah as a prophet on the run, he really had a season in which he was faithful to the Lord, delivered God's word, and saw God work through him. Now we come to Jonah chapter 1, verses 1 through 3. Hear God's word. Now the word of the Lord came to Jonah a son of Amittai, saying, Arise, go to Nineveh, that great city, and call out against it, for their evil has come up before me. But Jonah rose to flee to Tarshish from the presence of the Lord. He went down to Joppa and found a ship going to Tarshish, so he paid the fare, went down into it to go with them to Tarshish. 
away from the presence of the Lord. God, we just pray that you would bless the reading of your word, the hearing of your word, that you would draw us to yourself, that we all could acknowledge that we are born runners from you. We pray that uh, we would see how Christ ran to us and that we can run back to you, that you would give us that grace to draw us to yourself. We thank you for your relentless and pursuing grace, even as your own prophet ran from you. We thank you in the weeks ahead that we get to see all that you went through uh, to bring him back and your graciousness to speak the word of the Lord to him again. God, we pray that we would have ears to hear your word, that would be quick to obey this morning. We ask all this not for our name uh, or for some kind of moral effort to earn our way to you. Uh, we pray that you would uh, work in our hearts to give us the grace that we need in order to bring you glory. We ask this in Christ's name. Amen. So Jonah 1 Verses 1 through 3, a question that we asked last week, a question that we ask every week, really. What does this passage have to teach me about? God, you're not as confident as I was hoping, but the, that's how we begin every Bible study, is what does this passage teach me about God? Because the Bible, if you're our guest, is a book about God. Even the book with a name like Jonah as the title is really a book about who God is. Did you notice that God gets the first word? The word of the Lord came to Jonah. He gets the first word. Flip over in your Bible to Jonah 4 and notice that God also gets the last word. First and last, God speaks. Jonah chapter 4. If you're our guest, the large numbers of the chapters, the small numbers of the verses, we want you to feel comfortable using it. But look at the little tiny number, verse 9. Here's how the book ends. But God said to Jonah, do you do well to be angry for the plant? And he said, yes, I do well to be angry, angry enough to die. And the Lord said, you pity the plant for which you did not labor, nor did you make it grow, which came into being in a night and perish in a night. And should not I pity Nineveh, the great city in which there are more than 120,000 persons who do not know their right hand for their left, and also much cattle? This is not a book primarily about Jonah. It's not a book about a whale. It's not a book about navigation. This book is about God from beginning to end. It's not about a big fish. It's really about a big God. I love how G. Campbell Morgan put it. Men have looked so hard at the great fish that they have failed to see the great God. Look so hard to see the great fish that they have failed to see the great God. Well, what is about this great God do we learn? We first learn that this God speaks. We have a God who speaks. That may surprise you. I'm reading a book with Brad for Discipleship called The God Who Is There. And it challenges us that the most important thing about yourself is what you think about God. The most important thing about who you are is what you think about God and the God who speaks confronts this false worldview that God is some kind of watchmaker, that he designed and created the world, he spun it out, and is now standing back passively, unengaged, remote, distant, just passively observing what happens. It's not the God of the Bible. The God of the Bible is big, the God of the Bible is powerful. But he's also personal. He's intimately acquainted with all of our affairs. We're going to see that through Jonah. He wants to have a relationship with us, and he speaks to us, and he holds us accountable to do what he says. That's the God of the Bible, a God who speaks, 
Not only does he speak, but notice in verse 1 that he is also the God who calls. Jonah gets very clear orders from God. God says to him, arise, verse 2, go to Nineveh, that great city, and call out against it, for their evil has come up before me. No ambiguity there. A very clear, very direct message from God. How many of you are jealous? God, if you could just tell me what I'm supposed to do with my life, could you send it to me in a text so I could look at it again? Could you give it to me in an email? If I just knew what I was supposed to be, what I was supposed to do, life would be so much easier, right? Could you make it clear? Could you send me a text? And the reason we all want that is because we believe, according to the Bible, that as humans made in his image, we were all designed to live with a purpose. We want to know what the meaning of life is. What is the meaning of life? What is the purpose of life? Let me ask you here if you're a non-Christian. Can you have a calling without having a caller? The world will tell you, non-Christian, that you are responsible for your life, you're responsible for your body, you're responsible for your future, you're responsible for your family, you're responsible for your community, you're responsible for your environment, you're responsible for planet Earth. That's a heavy load. All response able, responsible for, but the world does not tell you that you are responsible to. Where the Bible says that before you are called somewhere, before you are called to do something, you are called to someone. Your calling as a human being is first to someone, not to go somewhere, not to do something. You are responsible primarily to before you are responsible for. And so to navigate a God-centered life, we all, non-Christian and Christian alike, need to recover the authority of God in our lives. And so church, do you only know of the soft gospel invitation? We're inviting you to follow Jesus at your convenience when you want to, if you so choose. Or have you been mastered by the summons of God's call. Arise, go. If it's real lordship, it's going to be absolute. It's going to be total. Jonah is called to do something. He's called to arise, to go to Nineveh. It's a great city. And he tells them that he's going to call out against it. And then he says, why? For their evil has come up before me. What does that mean? Well, you have to know a little something about the city of Nineveh. The city of Nineveh is known for its brutality and how they kill people, its mistreatment of its subjects. Listen to the book of Nahum as Nahum describes the city of Nineveh in Nahum 3. This is a curse or a warning to the city of Nineveh from Nahum. Woe to the bloody city, all full of lies and plunder, no end to pray. The crack of the whip and the rumble of the wheel, galloping horses and bounding chariot, horsemen charging, flashing sword and glittering spear, host of slain, heaps of corpses, dead bodies without end. They stumble over 
the bodies. That's Nineveh. That's where Jonah is being called to go, a wicked city and Israel's enemy. And yet our God of the Bible says to a prophet of Israel, go to that wicked city and tell them judgment is coming, right? What's so amazing about this is that we have a God who is not the God of the Assyrians, not a God of the Babylonians. He is the God of Israel, and he is choosing one of his prophets to go outside their nation on a foreign mission trip, to go to a different nation that God has not covenanted with, and to tell them judgment is coming. You might think that's a nice message at all, but really it's actually a chance for the Ninevites to repent. Sending Jonah, a prophet, even with that message that judgment is coming, is a chance for the Ninevites to hear that there can be mercy with this God, that there can be grace with this God, that there can be compassion. And it teaches us that as Christians, this is a God of not just one nation, of one locality. He is the God, sovereign God of the whole earth. Now, before we see what Jonah does, let's try to just make a connection between Jonah's day and our day. We have to put it in context to understand, really, why does Jonah ultimately disobey and run from this command to go preach to the Ninevites? Well, just place yourself for a second in the 1940s. What would make a German chaplain angrier than having to take the mercy of God to the Nazi party at Nuremberg? You're a German chaplain, and you're now the chaplain of all the prisoners of war at Nuremberg. And your desire for justice of what's been done in your country now has to get paired with God's mercy. Let's fast forward just a couple decades. In the 1960s, this is possible. Don't approve it. Don't want you to hear that. But what would make a Baptist Ku Klux Klan angrier than to offer God's mercy to a black community in Birmingham. Let's fast forward to today. What would make a nationalistic American angrier than to have to bear the news divine forgiveness to the Taliban or to Al-Qaeda? To Muslims. With this God, there's no racial, ethnic, or national barriers that disqualify anyone from his love. And if we see ourselves as Americans first, as Jonah saw himself as an Israelite first, it becomes really hard to want to obey the word of a universal God. There can be mercy for an enemy nation. That's Jonah's problem. Friends, the only thing that Jonah hates more than preaching mercy to the Ninevites is a God who would be merciful to them. That's strong language. The only thing Jonah hates more than going to preach to the Ninevites is a God who would have mercy on them. They don't need grace. They need justice. You don't believe me? Is that too strong of language for Jonah? Look at Jonah chapter 4, verse 1. This is after Jonah has gone and preached. Spoiler alert, the whole you know, city of Nineveh repents. There's a revival. Look at Jonah 4 after he's done. But it displeased Jonah exceedingly. 
and he was angry. Why? And he prayed to the Lord and said, O Lord, is not this what I said when I was yet in my country? That is why I made haste to flee to Tarshish, for I knew that you are a gracious God and merciful, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love and relenting from disaster. The only person Jonah hates more than the Ninevites is a God who would be merciful to them. But if you're here as a Christ follower, we understand that if you're a follower of this God, you have to learn to desire the good of everyone, no matter race, no matter place, no matter station in life. And so, by the way, our next couple of sermons, we get to learn how to do that. Next week, we have Pastor Richard Berry coming to challenge us to love locally as we think about serving people that are not in the same place as us. He has a ministry to homeless Some of us might have a hard time processing that. On February 2nd, we're going to be challenged by Mike Hodge, who is going to challenge us to reach Muslims for Christ, to love globally. It's always a profound challenge, no matter where we are in place of history, to care about the salvation of the world, to care about the salvation of people that are not like us, that don't look like us, that don't act like us, really just to care for anybody that isn't us. We are so self-centered. So what does Jonah do? Jonah chapter 1, he rose, but not to obey. He rose to run. It's a very concrete way here in verse 3 to see what the Bible means when it uses the word sin. Verse 3, but Jonah rose to flee to Tarshish from the presence of the Lord. He went down to Joppa and found a ship going to Tarshish. So he paid the fare and went down into it to go with them to Tarshish, away from the presence of the Lord. If you're here as a non-Christian, what is sin? The essence of sin is really just running away from God. Sometimes it's a literal running away. Jonah is not the only one in the Bible to ever run away from God. Adam and Eve got God's word, disobeyed, and the next thing they do is they play hide-and-go-seek. They are the inventors of hide-and-go-seek, but they play it at the level of a two-year-old. You know when you play hide-and-go-seek with your two-year-old? They just kind of hide in the middle of the room, maybe with a blanket over them, and they think that because they can't see you, you can't see them. And you walk in the room, you say, I see you, and they snicker. Or maybe they actually get a little bit older and they find a good hiding spot. Parents, you know this trick. You just say something funny. In whatever room you come into, and out of the closet, under the table, under the bed, you hear, <laughs> and you're like, it gives them away, right? Adam and Eve, they run from God. God sees them. David ran from God, and it's with Bathsheba, whole year. The disciples who knew who Jesus was, they ran and hid during his crucifixion. Jonah gets this direct message from God, and he runs. So before you say, man, Jonah had it so easy, he knew exactly what to do in life. If you're here as a young person, or if you're here thinking about retirement, and you're thinking, what do I do next, or you're young, but what am I supposed to do with my life? If God just told me I would do it, not so fast, not so fast. A little geography lesson here, Nineveh and Tarshish are in opposite directions, as opposite as they get. He is not directionally challenged like your spouse. His GPS is not broken. He knows exactly what he is doing. He's doing the exact opposite of what God has told them. 
and that is the essence of sin. When God has clearly spoken, we choose to do the exact opposite. You know, Jonah isn't the only one who has heard direct communication from the Lord. We have a whole Bible. Has God not been very clear, church, about baptism? Has God not been very clear about sexuality? Has God not been clear about forgiving as you have been forgiven? Has God not been clear in supporting the church and its worship and work? We could go on. We don't need in 2020 to look into the gray areas. We would do well to just focus on obeying the black and white areas that we know. It is not God's failure to communicate. The problem is our selective hearing. What did you say? Friend, are you running from God this morning? My encouragement would be make sure you're listening. It really is God's grace that in Jonah chapter 2 and 3, 1, the word of the Lord comes to Jonah a second time. This God is inescapable. We're going to see that next week, or not next week, we have Richard Bear, but the week after that of how God pursues Jonah through a storm. But we learn some things about sin. We first learn that sin is intentional. Jonah found a boat he intentionally rose to flee in the opposite direction to Tarshish from the presence of the Lord. Sin also makes you indifferent. It is the local anesthetic. Sin numbs your conscience. As he is indifferent to God's call, he is also indifferent to the cost. Jonah paid the fare himself. He was intentional to get as far away as possible. He was indifferent, but sin is also irrational. Look with me at verse 3. The end of it, he goes with them to Tarshish, and his motivation, it mentions twice, is to get away from the presence of the Lord. Can this almighty, sovereign, omnipresent God, can you actually flee from him? No. But Jonah thinks he can run. So here's how it works with sin. If you prefer sin, every time we choose to sin, we really can't retain an accurate belief in the true God who is there. We have to make our God smaller to make room for our sin, and now all of a sudden we don't have the true God of the Bible. Every time we sin, we make God smaller and ourselves bigger. I think Pastor Pat had a boss that used to have a cup that said, me boss, you not. We sometimes think, Jonah big, God small. God has this cup. <laughs> Me the boss. <laughs> you not. And so look at the results of this man-centered life. Jonah is spiraling downward. And it's in self-deception. Notice where sin takes you. Notice how many times in these three verses it says Jonah goes down. Arise, and all the way Jonah is going down, down, down. Verse 3, he went down to Joppa and found a ship going to Tarshish, so he paid the fare and went down into it. Friends, if you want to run from God, Satan will pay for the transportation. 
This is the most dangerous thing when we begin to stop listening to God's word and looking at our circumstances. I can't tell you how many people I've met that would say, Pastor, how could this not be God's will? There was a boat that's just provided for me to go there. If you want to go to Tarshish, there will be a thousand ships to take you there. That's how it is with sin. Satan will always provide the transportation. If you don't understand your soul, if you don't understand your heart, and if you don't understand God, it will always look easier in the short run to disobey and run. Let's kind of make it practical. Just like when you're on a diet. I know, it's tough. My wife and I were just in Quebec, and it's a lot more difficult to be on a diet in a city. You know that? They have windows everywhere. The pastries are out there for you to see. Okay, and so the doctor comes along and tells you that you need to be on a diet because fat and cholesterol is not good for you. Okay, and so you think, I'm not going to eat this stuff. Okay, because it's going to go against my physical being. I'm going to work actually against myself. But then you go into a city, and the temptation is all the more real because wherever you go, they're showing you that. I came back and I love living in rural New England. I mean, I drive from work to here. I pass nothing that I can see, and it is just I can stay faithful to that. I don't have a vending machine here at church. Please do not add one to the annual budget, okay? We are not looking to vote on that, okay? Uh, Because all of those times you walk past that, you have to say, nope, I'm going to listen to my doctor because this is going against my physical being. Friends, if you are going against your physical being when you disobey the doctor, how much more are you going against your very being when we disobey God? God knows our calling. God knows what we were made for. God knows what will bring us life and joy and peace. So we have to ask ourselves, where are you lacking God's heart and perspective? Where are you like Jonah? Is there an area of your life that you have not surrendered to God's summons? It's not to bring you down. It's to bring you into, like a diet, into conformity with how you were designed to live. What is the purpose of life, we asked? To glorify God and enjoy Him forever. Is God calling you to take a step of faith that feels risky? Church, do you have co-workers, do you have family members that you see as the Ninevites? Oh, I don't want to bring God's mercy and grace to them. They, want, they need justice. Will you obey or will you run? My encouragement to you is don't look at Jonah. Look to Christ. Because after Jonah, there was a different prophet. And this prophet, too, heard a word from the Lord. But this prophet did not disobey. This prophet heard from God, arise and go, but it wasn't to a city, it was to a cross. And he wasn't to go to that city to just preach. He was to go to the cross to actually pay for the sins of the world. And on that night, Jesus did not run. Listen to Hebrews chapter 12. Therefore, since we are surrounded by so great a cloud of witnesses, let us lay aside every weight, the sin which so 
closely clings to us and let us run with endurance the race that is set before us, looking to Jesus, the founder and perfecter of our faith, who for the joy that was set before him endured the cross, despising the shame, and is seated at the right hand of the throne of God. Last week, we introduced to you a song called A Christian's Daily Prayer. It was during our offering. And as you think about your man-centered life versus a God-centered life, this prayer is what a prayer could guide us through the week of how we want to live. So I'm going to invite the college students back up. They're going to play through it one time so we can catch it. And we'll start from the top and sing it again as we close the service.